if you recall, uh, last week we saw Jesus travel to Jerusalem from the region of the northern region of Galilee, where his hometown is, for the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. It goes by either of those names. Your translation of the Bible might say one or the other. Um, and it was called the Feast of Tabernacles because it, is, it happened at the beginning of the fall, uh, the beginning of a harvest season, and the farmers would actually set up little tabernacles in the fields to protect the crops that they were harvesting. And so it was called the Feast of Tabernacles for that reason. And so Jesus has entered Jerusalem, and this in fact will be the final period, uh, the final journey, if you will, uh, of his life before his crucifixion. And so this is the beginning of the fall, um, and about six months later, when we come back around to Passover in the spring, that will be the time when Jesus uh, goes to the cross and, uh, and dies for sinners, not for his own sin, but for ours. And so we find Jesus now in Jerusalem, and last week, he went into the temple and began preaching. We don't even really know the content of what he was preaching. John doesn't tell us that, but he does show us some of the crowds interacting with him and responding to his teaching. He teaches like one with authority, and he's very impressive, and he seems to know the law. Where did he learn it? And Jesus' uh, very kind of ironic and plain message in answer to that was heaven. I came from heaven. I got my training from God. I, my message is from God. I am from God. So that is kind of how he responded. And then he told them at the end of what we covered last week, so down in verses 32 and following, uh, he told them, I'll only be here a little while longer, and then I'm going somewhere where you can't come. And of course, he's referring to his crucifixion and resurrection and eventual ascension, that is return to heaven. So he's saying, I'm going to go back to heaven and be with my father, and you can't follow me there. But of course, the people don't get it. They say, where is he going to go that we can't find him? Is he going to go to the Greeks? And so we continue today in John chapter 7. We're going to pick up at verse 37 and, uh, and get to the end of the chapter. Now, I didn't tell you a whole lot about uh, the Feast of Tabernacles last week, except the, the thing about it being at the beginning of fall and having to do with the harvest and that kind of thing. But the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles, and in particular, a water ceremony that was going on throughout this week of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, is extremely important for us to understand the incredible pronouncement that Jesus is going to make about himself in today's verses. And so you'll see at verse 37, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. And cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, you read through that, and you go, oh, that's nice. Jesus calls himself living water. And you might think he did that earlier, right, in John chapter 4, when he encountered a Samaritan woman at a well in the middle of the day. He said, can I have a drink? And she said, why are you talking to me? You're a Jewish guy, and I'm a Samaritan woman. 
And Jesus' response to her was, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And so we've already seen this language of living water and Jesus giving living water. So you might see this connection to what Jesus has already said to this woman of Samaria. And you might go, okay, he's just saying the same thing, and that's nice, and move on. But if you don't understand the backdrop of what's going on at this, during the week of the Feast of Tabernacles, we miss some of the power uh, of this statement. So let me tell you a little bit about what's happening during the week of the Feast of Tabernacles. There was, this, there was a thing that they call a water ceremony that they would do. And here's basically what happens. This procession of priests. So the priests are the people who you know, enter the temple to represent the people of God, lead them in worship. So these were kind of the, the pastors of the day, although they wouldn't have called themselves that or even had the exact same function. But these were the, the spiritual leaders, right? They led the people in worship. So a procession of priests each day of the Feast of Tabernacles would carry a bucket, walk to the south of Jerusalem to the Gihon Spring, and they would fill up this bucket with water from the spring. While they were filling up this bucket of water, there would be a choir singing or chanting Isaiah 12.3 that says, with joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. And so there's this imagery of drawing water and this connection to God's God's provision and God's salvation. And so they're singing, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And they would carry this bucket of water back up into the center of the city and go into the temple where they had an altar, which is where you would make sacrifices and things like that for worship. And they would pour the water onto the altar as a way of of kind of, there was some ritual prayer in that, like praying to God for a fruitful harvest season Remember, they're in a desert, so they really need God to send rain to, uh, to let the crops grow the way they should and to harvest things the way, they, uh, the way they need to to survive through the next season. And so there's a prayer element here, calling upon God to, to saturate the land, if you will, with water. And there's a visual image in there of God's salvation. So the water that they draw from the spring and then pour onto the altar is a picture of God, not just providing water for his people, but actually saving them and giving them life and sustenance and a future. And so all of that is kind of wrapped up in what they're doing. And there's also a reminder here of something that happened back in Exodus 17, where the people of God have left Egypt, uh, where they had been enslaved. They've left Egypt, and now they're in the desert and they're thirsty, and they're griping, and they grumble against Moses and say, why have you led us out of Egypt to die of thirst? We should go back into slavery. And God tells Moses to strike a rock in the desert, and he would provide water through this rock. And so Moses strikes the rock, and miraculously, water pours forth from this rock, and the people have water to uh, to survive, right? To, so that God has provided for them miraculously through this rock, water coming from the rock. And there's also an echo of that in this prayer that God would provide water for them and, 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 uh, and grant them a successful harvest just as he provided water in the desert for their fathers 
back in the days of their wilderness wanderings. So they did that once a day, every day that week. But we find that Jesus makes his pronouncement on the last day of the feast that John calls the great day. And the reason that the last day is called the great day is because they would do, the priests would do this going to the Gihon spring and drawing the bucket and going back to the temple and pouring it on the altar seven times. So on the seventh day, they made that procession seven times. Seven sometimes in scriptures representing fullness or completion. And so it was a way of saying we are fully trusting in God and we have done this, you know, these rituals and said these prayers uh, as, a, as an act of worship and a way to say, God, we trust you to provide for us. And so this is the final day of this festival when this procession is happening seven times. And it's in the midst of that, with this imagery of water as sustenance and God providing for his people in the desert and this prayer for God's salvation, that Jesus stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink living water. Let him come to me. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So what is he saying? What is he doing? By standing in the middle of this ceremony, of this water and this chanting of drawing wells from the water of salvation and all of this, when he stands up and presents himself, he is saying, this is all about me. All of these rituals and these prayers and these patterns and these festivals and these habits that you have been keeping up for centuries all point to me. If you want water, if you want a drink, because you're thirsty, come to me. Let him come to me and drink. And so he is putting himself forward as the ultimate and final provision of life-giving water for God's people. So thirst here, obviously, is not a physical, literal thirst. He is speaking in spiritual terms. Let the one who recognizes his need come to me. Because then he promises, just as he's been promising throughout the last two chapters worth of of dialogue, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We did a little bit of a a survey in John chapter 6, chapter 5 and 6, of all of the times that Jesus made a promise based on whoever, fill in the blank, will then fill in the blank. And the the second fill in the blank was always, he'll have eternal life. He will live forever. He will have life. And the first fill in the blank was various things. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, whoever looks upon the Son of Man, whoever believes in me. But they all amounted to the same simple truth, which is believe. Whoever believes in me, whoever has faith in me as the Son of God, as the promised Messiah, as the only source of true life and satisfaction, whoever comes to me in faith will have eternal life. And so Jesus makes a similar statement here. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of 
living water. And so we have a very powerful pronouncement of Jesus' identity. Jesus comes forward in the middle of this huge feast and festival and this water ceremony and says, I'm the real water. I'm the living water. I'm the one who actually can give you the life that you so desperately need and crave. And if anyone is thirsty, if anyone recognizes his need, let him come to me and drink. So he did not make himself known in the way that his brothers suggested. If you remember back at the beginning of chapter 7, his brothers said to him, just go down to the feast and perform some miracles and let everybody know who you are. And John told us that they said that because they didn't even believe in him. Even his brothers did not believe in him. So they recognized he can do cool stuff. They didn't quite get who he is. They didn't quite get he's the son of God. He's God in flesh, right? So they say, go and make yourself known and do powerful stuff. And Jesus said, this is not my time. My hour has not yet come. But then he goes and he makes himself known, but in a very different way. He hasn't performed any miracles. John hasn't recorded for us any miracles. He went to the temple and started teaching. And then on the last day of the feast, he stood up again in the midst of the people and said, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and let him drink. So he's not doing powerful acts of, uh, of you know, healings and things like that, casting out demons. He doesn't do anything like that. He just presents himself as who he is. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the only one who can bring life to your dead souls. So you can imagine this will be controversial, and we'll come down to the controversy in just a minute, but we need to investigate a little bit what this living water means, what it really is. And John, thankfully, graciously, tells us in, verses, in verse 39 what Jesus is talking about. Because Jesus doesn't spell all this out for the people. He says, if anyone's thirsty, come to me, let him drink. As the scripture said, out of his heart, whoever believes, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that's a spiritual statement that takes some discernment to figure out what exactly does that mean? What kind of living water are we talking about? But John tells us, look at verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit. Notice the capital S, Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John is telling us, the reader, now we're on the other side historically of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. And so John is now telling the reader, you know about the Holy Spirit who was to come, but they didn't yet. So when Jesus said, come to me and rivers of living water will flow, they didn't necessarily know or understand and to make the connection between living water and the Holy Spirit. But because we're on this side of the cross and not before it and the resurrection, we are able to see and understand what is meant by this living water offer. And John tells us very plainly, he's talking about the Holy Spirit whom believers were to receive, which is pretty amazing. Jesus quoted this, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I think living water is a picture, again, as Jesus loved to do, take a, a physical, literal image and make that an analogy for a spiritual truth or spiritual reality 
And John is telling us that the physical image of living water, which just means flowing, active water, the picture of living water is supposed to point us to the Holy Spirit, the reality of the Holy Spirit given to those who believe. And so we begin to touch on an extremely important aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we begin to scratch the surface of the New Testament teaching on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes we overlook this, and we'd be prone to, look, to just zoom right by that and miss the significance of this incredible gift. One of the most precious and beneficial aspects of knowing Jesus and following him is that he gives to each one of his followers the Holy Spirit. Remember that God is three persons in one being, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says that I'm going to give to you uh, another helper, he calls him in some places, or the comforter, he calls him in another place. But the Holy Spirit is going to come, and John tells us he's going to be given to everyone who believes, but not yet. John himself promised this to his believers in, uh, late in this gospel. In John 14, 6, Jesus says um, that of the Holy Spirit, he is with you, but he will be in you. Your relationship to the Holy Spirit will change once Jesus is glorified. That's the, the fancy word that John uses there in verse 39. And I think he's referring to the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension kind of all together. When Jesus dies for sins and rises again and then ascends back to heaven in glory, that is all the glorification of Jesus, where he's taken his rightful place as Savior and King. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit will no longer just be with you. He'll be in you. In Acts chapter 2, we see this happen for the first time. So Jesus has gone back to heaven, and he's told his disciples to wait. At the very beginning of the book of Acts, he says, go into the upper room and wait. And then when power comes upon you, when the Holy Spirit comes to you, you will be clothed with power and then you will be my witnesses to all the world, okay? And so the disciples in Acts 1 are hanging out in a room together, waiting for the Holy Spirit, essentially. And the Holy Spirit comes to them in Acts chapter 2 in this incredible scene. I'll read to you just a little bit of it. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so now there's a crowd of people seeing this happening and they start to go, these people are crazy or they're drunk. Like, what is going on? And so Peter stands up and he says, men of Israel, we are not drunk, as you suppose, but we have come to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And then he simply preaches the gospel that Jesus lived obediently in our place and that he died for our sins and that he was raised and that he is inviting people into a new life relationship with him. And the people 
uh, are pierced to the heart. And they say, what do we do? What must we do? And Peter says, believe in Jesus, be baptized, and you'll be saved. And it says at the end of chapter 2 of Acts, about 3,000 people were added to their number that very day. So that is the first indwelling or infilling of the Holy Spirit happening right after Jesus has ascended to heaven, sent his disciples to wait. In Acts 2, we see it come. And then from that point on, the Holy Spirit is at work in the world through his people, through the followers of Jesus, because the Holy Spirit is living there and leading them and empowering them and giving them courage and wisdom and words to speak. And they were threatened and challenged and thrown in jail and threatened with beheading and execution. And they said, I don't care. I'm going to preach about Jesus. How could they possibly do that? Think about Peter, who just a few days before had denied that he even knew who Jesus was because he was afraid that he would be lumped in with Jesus' followers and be killed. Now Peter is leading this charge. How is that possible? The Holy Spirit is living inside Peter and every follower of Jesus. And so we see the promise of Jesus, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, he's going to be in you. We see it start to come to fruition in the book of Acts. And then the Apostle Paul tells us in, first, excuse me, in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, and this is, now a, this is a universal truth for all followers of Jesus. In him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You've got an inheritance. You've got riches stacked up in heaven of salvation and grace and mercy and love and joy that God is keeping for you. And how we know we're going to get that is that God in this day, in this moment, has given us the seal of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes to live in the believer in Jesus Christ and through his presence in our lives, we know that we are saved and we know that this inheritance is being kept for us. Don't miss one of the greatest gifts that Jesus affords us, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, there's a verse that says this, Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. How is that all afforded to us? By the Holy Spirit living in our lives. His presence, his strength, his hope. That is the presence of God through his spirit in our lives, in our hearts. And Jesus offers this to everyone who believes. They didn't get it. They didn't hear all of that when Jesus made his announcement about who he is, when he made his offer to come and drink anyone who's thirsty. But John doesn't want us to miss it. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. These rivers of living water that will flow in your heart, that's the presence of of God in your life. You know, I think it's worth 
reflecting on ourselves and our own lives and, and asking ourselves whether we see and experience the presence of God's Spirit on a regular basis. And I don't mean anything like super-duper mystical or weird about that, but if you're constantly struggling with, with a particular sin and you feel like you just can't get past it or you don't find yourself growing in, in wisdom or in gentleness or patience, all those things that Galatians 5 says are the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you don't see yourself growing in any way in any of these, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, we need to pause. We need to examine ourselves and see, am I, have I really, truly trusted in Jesus? Have I really rested my life and my soul and my eternity on all that He is and He alone for me? Because He promises that if you come to me and believe, the Holy Spirit is going to come and live inside you. That's what He's saying through this promise. Out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. So we need to take care to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, to have an attitude of humility that allows His Spirit to work in us. So Jesus has presented himself as the source of life and living water, the giver of the Holy Spirit. And I think there's two things for us to take away from his presentation of himself in this way that we see reflected in the crowds who are going to respond to him. Two things. The first thing is this. Make a decision about who Jesus is. We have to make a decision about who Jesus is. Look at, the, look at verses 40 through 44. We see the people respond in some different ways. Let's read these verses together. Verse 40, when they heard these words, that is, they heard Jesus' announcement, come to me and drink and you'll receive living water. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Hasn't the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So, verse 43, there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So we see a few different responses to Jesus after he's made this announcement about himself. He's presented himself plainly in the presence of all. I am the source of living water, the giver of the Holy Spirit the one who's come from God to redeem people. And some people say, I think maybe he's the prophet. And I think the prophet they're referring to is the one in Deuteronomy 18, 18, where Moses said, another prophet like me will come to you. And so there was this expectation of a prophet kind of after the manner of Moses that would come to his people um, and, uh, and fulfill that promise. So some people say, I think maybe he's the prophet that Moses was talking about. Others say, more certainly, oh, he's, he's the Christ. He's not just a prophet. He's the anointed redeemer that God is sending to his people. Jesus is the Messiah. And so there's some more full-bodied belief in the claims that Jesus is making among some of them. But then some of them are doubtful, skeptical, because they go, wait a minute. Jesus is from Galilee. 
And the way I read the Old Testament, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem and to be of the line of David. So how could it be that he's from Galilee and be the Messiah? Well, we know, if you can remember your Christmas stories, Luke chapter 2, we know, in fact, as Luke 2 tells us, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And so all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea, where? To the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he went there with his fiancée, Mary, who was with child. Which child? Jesus. And while they were there as visitors in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And so she delivered her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Does that sound familiar? That's Jesus born in Bethlehem to parents who are from the family of David. So this crowd doesn't know that. They just see he grew up in Nazareth, and his dad is a carpenter. So they go, I don't think this Jesus can be the Messiah because he's from Galilee. But if they knew the whole story, they'd actually see, oh, he actually was from Bethlehem, and he actually is from the line of, of David. Jesus doesn't see the need to correct them. He just kind of lets that lie. That's, where, that's what you think, then that's what you think. But we know the truth. Jesus truly is from Bethlehem. But, so we've got some who say, he's a good, man, he's a special guy. He's a prophet. He's like, yeah, I think he's, he's got good stuff to say. We should listen to him. Then you've got people that are more full-bodied belief. Yeah, he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. Then you've got people who are on the fence, kind of skeptical. I, I don't know. I, yeah, he's pretty impressive, and yeah, that was pretty cool what he did about the water thing, but... Uh, He's from Galilee. That doesn't make sense. He doesn't, he doesn't match my expectations. He doesn't meet exactly what I think the Messiah should be like. And then you have some others, in verse 44, who are firmly opposed and want to arrest him. Of course, by now, we know that this group of people are the, the Pharisees and the chief priests and the religious leaders who have seen Jesus as a threat to them and have taken his self-pronouncements of being the Messiah to be blasphemy. And so they say, he needs to be killed, and so they're going to try to arrest him. Once again, no one lays a hand on him because it's not the right time. And so God says, can't do that. I'm not going to let you lay a hand on him yet. It's not his time. So opinions on Jesus run the gamut. They're all over the place. He's a good guy. He's the son of God. I'm not sure what I think about him. I think he's false. I think he's a phony. I think he ought to be stoned. But here's the point. Jesus' presence and message demands a verdict. Jesus doesn't let us stay in this undecided place, in this wavering and kind of straddling the fence, so to speak. He demands a, a verdict. He is not content with our indifference or our indecision. You may have heard the phrase, to be undecided is to be decided. That's exactly how it is. Jesus says, if you're with me, if you believe in me, then come on, come to me, and all this is yours. Life, the Holy Spirit, an eternal hope, an inheritance that's being kept in heaven for you. All of this is yours. 
But if you're anything short of all in, even if you're like, I like Jesus. I think he's a pretty smart guy. I think he has some great philosophies. That's not enough. That's all. That's exactly the same as I think Jesus is a phony and should be condemned. You're in the same place as far as Jesus is concerned. If you're skeptical and not sure, or you're convinced that he's a phony and ought to be rejected, he doesn't allow us to remain in this place of indecision. Now, does that mean that questioning is wrong? Does that mean that wondering and searching and weighing is wrong? Of course not. And in fact, we're going to see in this very next section of verses that there's a, a, a character, a recurring character, that is kind of in that exact place. But the point is, we have to make a decision about who Jesus is. We can't live forever in a place of indecision and uncertainty and expect to be counted among his people. We have to place ourselves, just as he said over and over throughout this gospel, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Make a decision. The second thing I think we take away from this is that we have to count the cost to follow. We've got to count the cost. What is it going to cost us to follow Jesus, to believe in Jesus. And we see this expressed, I think, in this last section, these last few verses, verses 45 down through the end of the chapter. Let's read some of this. So remember that that the Pharisees have sent temple guards, kind of like police officers of the day, to go and arrest Jesus. So they've called in the big dogs, their big guns. They've sent the officers after Jesus, go and seize him. So verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring him? Like, you're supposed to have Jesus in your custody next time we saw you. Because remember, we sent you out with a simple mission, go and get him and bring him here. Here you are, and there's no Jesus. What gives? And the officers answered in verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. Even the, the police officers are too impressed with Jesus to carry out their orders. We can't arrest this guy. Listen to him. He's impressive. He's different. He's unique. So the Pharisees answered them, not very pleased with that in verse 47. Have you also been deceived? You too? You went out there with one simple job to arrest Jesus, and now you're like one of his? You've been deceived as well? And so someone, a spokesman among the Pharisees, raises this question in verse 48. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And now he's throwing shade at all the people because if they believe in Jesus, then they're fools. They don't really understand the law. They don't really know who who Jesus actually is. But this question in verse 48, is there anyone else? Are there any other authorities? So imagine, so you've got this council, if you will, of Pharisees and chief priests. These are the guys who are like on team anti-Jesus, right? That is, that is their team. And the police officers come back and say, we can't arrest him, man. He's too interesting. He's too cool. We're too impressed. And so a Pharisee goes, all right, is there anybody else here that needs to speak up and say, actually, I'm with Jesus too? Has anyone else been deceived? That's the way they think about it. If you believe in Jesus, you're a fool. You've been deceived. Anybody else? Anybody else? Well, who are we going to hear from, I wonder, in response to that question? Is there any other Pharisee in the room 
that has been deceived and needs to fess up that they're actually believing in Jesus. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them. You remember Nicodemus? John chapter 3, there's a Pharisee that came to Jesus by night, right? Doesn't want to be seen with Jesus, doesn't want to be interpreted as being with Jesus, but he's interested. He's curious. And he comes to Jesus and he says, you've got to be from God because nobody does the things you do if God's not with him. But what is up? Who are you? What is your, what's your story? And that's where Jesus goes, goes on this message about the need to be born again. No one sees the kingdom of God unless they're born again. By the way, speaking of the Holy Spirit, it's just like the wind. The wind blows, you don't see it, you don't know where it's going, but you feel its effects. So is everyone who is born by the Spirit of God. And that's where he makes his famous declaration, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He gave his only son. And that whoever believes in the son will not perish but have everlasting life. Yeah, this is Nick. This is Nicodemus. This guy who went to Jesus at night to find out what's your story? Where are you from? John chapter 3 ended without us seeing how Nicodemus responded. So it left that a question mark for us. But here Nicodemus shows up again. And here's what he says in verse 51. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So, this is not quite a full declaration of support and belief. Yeah, I'm with Jesus, right? So you've got the Pharisees. Anybody else? Anybody else need to fess up to being deceived and following Jesus? It's interesting that Nicodemus is the one who speaks up. I think it shows us something about where he is. But what he says is not, yeah, I'm with Jesus. What he says is, let's just slow down. Like, let's just let's take this from a little bit wider perspective. We have to give somebody a fair trial. You know, we've got to hear them out. So, like, let's not go arrest him and do all that stuff. Right now. Let's just, let's let this play out. Let's see who he is. Let's listen to his story. So, he's, he's urging temperance and patience and mercy, perhaps, toward Jesus. So he's certainly leaning, leaning toward Jesus, but he's not to the point yet where he's willing to say, yes, I am all in. You got to think about where Nicodemus is. Oh, look at their response to him. So he says, we should listen to this guy. We should hear him out and give him a fair trial. Verse 52, they replied, are you from Galilee too? In other words, like, you're drinking the Kool-Aid too? Right? You're just like a hometown buddy now with Jesus, so you're kind of like on his side now. So they see through his words, I think, to like, Nicodemus seems to be leaning toward Team Jesus. And then they say, search and see, no prophet arises from Galilee. Which in fact is false, because the prophet Jonah, for one, the prophets Nahum and Habakkuk, for two others, actually were from the region of Galilee. So I'm not sure exactly where they're... Uh, derision for Galilee arose in this assumption that no good thing or no prophet could possibly come from Galilee. But nevertheless, they seem to hold that kind of prejudicial attitude toward that area. Are you one of him? Are you one of his too? Are you from Galilee also? Think about what this would cost Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Nicodemus is well-respected, well-regarded in the community. He's seen as an expert on God's law. He's got his act together. He knows his stuff. He's one of this 
powerful political group of, of Pharisees who really kind of control a lot about the way things go in Jewish life. Um, and so not just religiously, but politically as well. So Nicodemus is well-connected, and he's a part of this governing body, if you will. So if he's going to go, I'm with Jesus, the guy that you're all trying to kill, is conv- are convinced that he's a blasphemer, what is that going to do to his career? What is that going to do to his family? We don't really know anything about Nicodemus's family, but just assume, I mean, just for the sake of argument, he's got a wife, he's got kids. He's got to take care of them. Well, if I, if I cast my lot with Jesus, I'm not a Pharisee anymore, not well-regarded, probably lost my job, so to speak, right? And maybe even his, like, health and life, because if they're trying to kill Jesus and I name myself with him, maybe they arrest me next. Maybe they press me for info or whatever. So it's going to cost Nicodemus to follow Jesus. It's going to cost him dearly to say, yeah, I'm with Jesus. And again, just as in John chapter 3, John chapter 7 ends without really giving us the answer to how Nicodemus responds to that tension, that pressure. Keep an eye out as we go through John's gospel because he will appear later at a very important moment toward the end of John's gospel. But for now, we're not sure where Nicodemus ended up. We just know that he seems to be weighing his options and counting the cost. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He said in Luke 14 that nobody sets out on a building project without first figuring out all the materials he's going to need and making sure he's purchased land, you know, to, to put the... the, the uh, the property on, and first he's going to count up everything that it's going to cost before he makes the decision to go and buy the property and build this building. You've got to count the cost first, and in the same way, let the one who follows me, let him count the cost, let him deny himself, let him carry his cross and follow me. That doesn't sound like fun, does it? Carry my cross. I thought I was supposed to come to you for like peace and life and, and love and joy and happiness. What, what is all this talk about a cross and about denying myself? Jesus says, it's going to cost. Salvation, don't get me wrong, salvation is free, but it's not cheap. Salvation comes as a result of just placing your faith in Jesus. I believe in him and his life and death and resurrection for me, and that's it. That's how I have a standing and a relationship with God. That's how I get the Holy Spirit in my life. It's just simple faith in him, but he wants everything. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants your decisions to be run through the grid of how is this going to please God or dishonor God? How is this going to make God, make Jesus known in my community or among my family? Or would this sort of mask the fact that I'm uh, believing in Jesus? He wants us to see that we're saying no to the sins and the things that our flesh desires. Because we still want sinful stuff. It's true. I do too. We want things that are forbidden. He wants us to be willing to say, no, I'm saying no to that, and I'm going this way after Jesus, the other direction. It's going to cost you. So, 
you got to make a decision about Jesus. And a part of that is counting the cost. What's it going to take? What's it going to cost me to really, truly give my life to Jesus Christ? In 1956, there was a group of missionaries to uh, the mountains of Ecuador. Uh, and they worked among, they went there to, to live and to serve and to teach among uh, a, group of, uh, a group of Indians called the, the Waudani Indians. And so they went there. There were five missionaries, one of whom was named Jim Elliott. And they went to Ecuador um, to meet these people. And they knew that this group of people was kind of a warring people. They're very violent. Um, and so they, they knew that there was risk. They knew that there, was, uh, that there was cost involved in going to live among these people and risk to their own livelihood and their lives and their safety. And at some point in kind of uh, being asked about their willingness to go and to be missionaries to this place, uh, they said um, that we're not going to fight back. If, if we go there and they try to kill us, we're ready for heaven and they're not. So we're going to just let that be. Like if they want to kill us and God sees fit for us to die in his service, then so be it. But we're not going to fight back because they need to hear about Jesus first, which is a pretty cool way to think about that. And in fact, when they arrived in Ecuador and landed their little plane and got out onto the, the beach area, they were greeted by these Indians with spears and they um, were all killed. They were, they were speared to death. Which we think of as utter tragedy, right? We think, that's awful. What good could possibly come of that? Why were they possibly willing to do that? Jim Elliott had been quoted as saying, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so... Jim Elliott and these other missionaries were convinced that what they possessed in Jesus Christ was sure and lasting and eternal, and it was worth sacrificing everything for. And to give up all the stuff that we try to accumulate and all the things that we place our hope in, our confidence in, and more things and more activities and more acclaim and more money and more career advancement or whatever it is, more pleasure to give that stuff up that we can't keep anyway because Jesus is saying come over here follow me and you've got all this you have an eternal inheritance that's being kept for you you have the Holy Spirit who will come to live in you peace for today strength for today bright hope for tomorrow thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide that's all for you but you've got to be willing to lay all this aside and so in fact, the, the story of the uh, Waurani Indians and, uh, and the, the missionary work among them didn't end that day because, in fact, some of the family members of these murdered missionaries returned and lived among them and taught them and loved them and preached the gospel to them. And the people were so surprised by the fact that they would be willing to return to them knowing that they had killed their family members, it made them kind of pause. And they gave them audience, and they listened to what they had to say. And this group was radically changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Because a few men were willing to say, I'll give up everything for the sake of Christ and making him known. 
So we've got to be willing to count the cost. We've got to make a decision about who Jesus is because he is the only one that has life and a future and an inheritance for us and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's it. That's the only way we get it. Whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water.